This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Today we're going to spend some time asking why we don't seem to be getting value for money out of the spend on mental health care. A long-announced Royal Commission in Victoria hasn't even got its terms of reference together, yet apparently has already had thousands of submissions. The Productivity Commission is doing its own inquiry starting in April, and reportedly the government is considering changes to the Medicare benefits schedule proposed by a bunch of psychologists and some others, which critics estimate could pour an extra $2 billion into psychologists' pockets for questionable benefit. But let's start with the world first, an approved treatment for people with chronic breathlessness, a debilitating condition which affects up to 300,000 Australians and causes a vicious cycle of decline as they avoid even the slightest exercise because it brings on shortness of breath. Someone who has researched this new treatment and reviewed the evidence that it works is David Currow, who's Professor of Palliative Medicine at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome back to The Health Report, David. Good afternoon. What causes chronic breathlessness? Look, for the people who experience chronic breathlessness across our community, two out of three of them attribute it to diseases such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema. And the balance uh, from people who have uh, chronic heart failure, uh, perhaps advanced cancer, or one of the neurodegenerative diseases such as motor neurone disease. What's life like for them? What do they experience? People with chronic breathlessness experience a shrinking world and in fact many of them describe a social death that uh, their world becomes so small that deconditioning of which you spoke is really a, an integral part of their day that they don't leave the house. You know, we've got 70,000 Australians who are breathless either um, and are unable to leave the house or on dressing or undressing. This and there's is, another 200,000 on the way. There's another 200,000 with, uh, with really debilitating breathlessness trying to uh, undertake their activities of daily living. So this has a massive impact on these people and they're invisible to us in the health system largely. Because they don't get out. They don't get out. They only come to us in crisis. And as clinicians, we're really good at steering our clinical consultations away from things about which we think we can do little. And is it kind of a terminal thing? I mean, is it, does it harbinge, is it a harbinger of early, early death? Or? It's certainly associated with advanced life-limiting illnesses, but our challenge is that many people live with this degree of breathlessness for many years. And as a community, we have really not reached out and thought, what can we do to improve their quality of life? So we'll come to this treatment in a moment. What's been available up till now? Well, up till now, really, you, you seek as a clinician to reverse the reversible causes. So if it's heart failure and you've got too much fluid in the lungs, you can give a water tablet, which gets rid of the water, or the fluid. But there comes a point when that's no longer working and there's still fluid in the lungs, or the, uh, the, the lungs are so broken down from emphysema that you're not going to be able to improve. So the uh, blue puffers or the brown puffers or whatever they use don't work anymore. That's right. And so for these people, you can then try some non-pharmacological things, talk to them about pacing uh, their days so that they're planning carefully when they're going to be breathless, how much time they're going to have to recover from it. But at the end of the day, uh, until now, there has been no medication registered anywhere around the world for the symptomatic reduction of this debilitating process. Now, when I did the research, well, I should say do the research, James Bullen, my producer, ends up doing the research. I just benefit from it. But the um, you first researched this substance in 2003. 
that was 15 our, years ago. Yeah. It takes a while for things to come through. <laughs> well, look, uh, our, our first study uh, actually went to the Ethics Committee in 1998. So it does take an awfully You're long time. Patient. Now, this is an opiate. This is a morphine. This is morphine, mm, basically. Yeah. So what we've studied is uh, a sustained release preparation of morphine that was developed in Australia in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it, it releases a very small amount of morphine around the clock and essentially supplements the morphine that you or I make in response to breathlessness. So, and, and it's an appeal form, but the pill slowly releases in your body. Well, I mean, opiates have got um, a bad rap. Is it, are you going to, how does it work? I mean, having said that, I mean, I remember when I was a junior doctor in Scotland and somebody came in with acute heart failure, we actually used to give them heroin mm. because it relieved their breathing. So this is part of the same thing. What, what's going on here? Remind me what happens when you give an opiate to somebody with breathlessness. Well, firstly, uh, you and I make uh, an opioid uh, ourselves in response to breathlessness. And what we're doing is is supplementing that with this small amount of, uh, of morphine that is released right around the clock. Importantly... Why does, it, why does it relieve the breathlessness? And how well does it relieve it? So two out of three people who have this therapy would notice that their breathlessness was reduced at a level that they thought was clinically significant to them. So that's a great response. How does it work? Well, the area of your brain that controls the sensations, the, the perception of things like pain, also has uh, the area that controls the perception of breathlessness. And importantly, that area is absolutely saturated with, with morphine receptors. So morphine helps to modulate particularly that sensation of the worst breathlessness that you're having when you are exerting yourself and making a difference that patients themselves can acknowledge. So we're going to create more opiate-dependent people? Well, I think one of the most important things here is uh, this is only registered for a very low dose. So unlike pain where there's no upper limit, uh, this registration is uh, for uh, a very low dose and only for a low dose. Um, we know the side effects. We've been using this medication since uh, the early uh, 19th century. There's nothing new there, and this is not going to create new problems. In fact, many people are already on this, but it is off-label, and what we're able to do, therefore, is to carefully monitor exactly what's happening for these patients and ensure that we're minimising the harms while maximising the benefits. So can any doctor prescribe this or you've got to go to a palliative care doctor like you? Uh, no, it, it, it's re the reimbursement, uh, sorry, the registration uh, is for a specialist who is skilled in this area. So it, it may be a respiratory physician, it may be a cardiologist, uh, it may be a palliative medicine physician. And how come we're the first in the world? We're the first in the world because there's been a really unique relationship uh, formed between the Australian National Palliative Care Clinical Studies Collaborative, uh, the world's largest clinical trials group in, uh, in people with advanced symptoms, and Maine Pharma International, uh, an Australian pharmaceutical company uh, that uh, was the uh, successor of the company which actually developed so, uh, this, uh, this technology folding back in uh, the 1980s. And I suppose we should just give the name to it because people will want to know it's called Capanol. Mm. And we should get a declaration here. You're not taking fees from the drug company or whatever. I have worked closely with them uh, in, uh, in the time. Uh, and clearly, uh, you know, universities have worked closely. 
uh, also, so Flinders uh, University, University of Technology, Sydney, and that intellectual work uh, is certainly part of, uh, of a relationship with the company. David, thank you. Have a great day. David Currow, Professor of Palliative Medicine at, uh, at the University of Technology, Sydney. And you're listening to The Health Report here on RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. I'm Norman Swan. Mental health is rarely out of the news. Now, by the way, this is going to be a long interview you're going to hear to try and get to the bottom of some of these issues. And if you've got comments to make, why don't you text us your comments on 0418-226-576. 0418-226-576. And I'll try and introduce your comments as we go along. Mental health is certainly an election issue in Victoria last year, and the Labour government announced a Royal Commission which has yet to announce its terms of reference because of extended consultations. Despite that, I'm told that submissions are flooding in. The Productivity Commission is holding an inquiry into mental health, and that kicks off in April. And as part of the three-year-long review into the Medicare benefits schedule, those are the item numbers for service fees that are reimbursable by Medicare, the Mental Health Reference Group has proposed a raft of recommendation to beef up what's called the Better Access Program. That's been going for about 12 years and gives people access to psychologists via a GP referral through what's called a mental health plan. The Better Access Program was estimated to cost just over $100 million a year, but now takes around $1.2 billion of taxpayers' funds plus nearly $300 million in out-of-pocket expenses every year. And that's for a program that's never been properly evaluated by either Labour or coalition governments. Yet suicide rates keep rising. So, uh, a, a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne has said that there's been no discernible, discernible benefit from the program. And, criti you know, and critics in general say the needle isn't budging on helping people with mental health issues. These same critics argue that if the federal government were to implement the changes suggested by the psychologist-dominated mental health reference group, it'll cost an added $2 billion with potentially little or no benefit. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, we spend over $9 billion a year on mental health-related services in state and federal level. That isn't a lot, actually, when, for example, major public hospitals spend up to a billion dollars each each year. So it's tempting to think that the simple answer is more money for mental health and that the federal government should pour in the requested loot into psychologist services. One of the people arguing that would be a bad idea is Ian Hickey, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney and the co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre. Welcome back to the Health Report, Ian. Thank you for the opportunity, Norman. So what did this reference group um, recommend? Well, they focused on simply how you could expand the current better access scheme. As you say, it came in through Tony Abbott in 2006. I was associated with work earlier in the Howard government, Michael Woolridge, which had a scheme called Better Outcomes. Interesting that, Better Outcomes before Better Access in 2001. And that followed a study we did of over 46,500 patients attending general practice at the time, over 380 general practitioners. At that time, you would remember, Norman, the new drugs, the new Prozac-like drugs, came on the market in the late 1990s, rapid increase in general practice, rapid increase in treatment in Australia, and a big concern about an overuse of medicines and an underuse of psychological therapies. At that stage, you could not get psychological therapies under Medicare. You could get some through public hospitals, but many people paid entirely out of pocket. So Michael Woolridge, in association with John Howard, took the first step. At the end of that program, only $50 million a year was actually being spent, as you say now, over $1.4 So this big change happened 
And there's big emphasis on access. Now, that program was designed originally to deal with the kind of brief interventions that GPs might work with psychologists in teams to provide. And we should explain what those are because there is good evidence that evidence-based psychologist services do make a difference. Brief interventions delivered by skilled psychologists for less severe forms of anxiety and depression are highly effective and should be the treatment of first choice before you go to things like SSRI or Prozac-like drugs. That wasn't happening in Australia, partly because we subsidised medicines, we subsidised a trip to the doctor, we didn't subsidise psychology. Now, a big fight then ended in 2006, usual one in Australia, between the Commonwealth and the states. The big group of those with more complex and disorders that require more than brief intervention, the Commonwealth said, well, the state should fund. The state said, well, the Commonwealth should fund, leaving what's been called the missing middle, those with complex and ongoing disorders, if you're a kid, you don't go to school, if you're an adult, you don't go to work, there's a lot of disability. So put some flesh on the bones of that. What is, what, what is somebody experiencing who has one of those disorders? Well, let's take an example. Greg Hunt, the current minister, has done one really good thing. He's identified eating disorders. You are not going to respond if you're an anorexia nervosa and a 15% chance of being dead from that condition to five or 10 sessions of a psychologist working alone or a GP working alone or a psychiatrist working alone or a dietitian working alone. You need a complex team of care to get involved with you to have any chance. So he's made one change, which is to say for anorexia, for eating disorders, we will see a shift away from this simplistic fee-for-service short session. But that's a relatively rare condition. So what's, what's been the shift there? Well, he's said that he will now support team-based funding for those people to work together. So Greg Hunt's done a very important thing there. But that's a tiny bit of the big problem. So, so, so expand beyond anorexia nervosa. What other yeah. conditions are sitting there in the middle when you don't have, say, schizophrenia? You've got severe depression. The common ones are mood disorders, severe depression with associated drug and alcohol abuse, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, early phases of psychosis, many of these conditions. Now, we've got many names for these complex comorbid conditions typically come on in adolescence, take you out of school or work, persist. Now, we've shown in our own work repeatedly brief interventions in that area do not result in improved functional outcomes. Because you're too sick. You're too sick. It's like going along and having your breast cancer identified and then saying, well, that's very nice. We'll just see how it goes. And if it gets worse, let us know. You know, it progresses and it progresses to disability and it's associated with premature death. I mean, real critics of these programs, I must say, I am associated with those other programs, brief interventions. I played a role in this better access, better outcomes and the establishment of headspace. They don't go far enough. As Pat McGorry and I'd say, they need greater depth, not greater breadth. If you're going to get real functional outcomes. That's where the really big missing bit is. And we abandoned the whole discussion in 2006 in a classic Commonwealth federal standoff. Then we waited. I was on the National Mental Health Commission for six years. We recommended to And so, so then just, just to come back yep. to what you were saying earlier, so we don't lose the thread <laughs> here, um, is that, so there was this argument about that more serious mental health issues should go to the states. But what's happened is that really what the states deal with are people with really at the severe end. Yeah. who have got severe bipolar disorder, severe psychosis and chronic psychosis. And they attempt suicide and they're homeless and they're older and they're dislocated. So, in fact, the states have so withdrawn. So you're, further down, you're the track. further down the track. And what we see now is really good evidence in New South Wales and Victoria of increasing numbers of young people, teenagers, turning up in emergency departments with suicidal behaviour tragically actual suicides increasing in some of those younger age groups because there's nowhere else to go in those areas. So, you know, the Minister, Hunt, again, again, very appropriately, had a suicide prevention summit only a few months ago saying, what is going on here? <laughs> you know... Because the suicide rates are continuing to go up. Because in young people, 
Not only is there increasing demand for services, but the risk to life is going up and the long-term risk to disability is going up. If you go out of school or work at that early age, your chance of going on to welfare for life is very high. Brief interventions don't fix that. The Institute of Medicine in the United States in 2006 said, look, we've got to stop this. Team-based care. If you've got cancer, team-based care. If you have complex palliative care, which you've just been talking about, team-based care. If you've got complex heart condition, could you imagine just seeing one person? It's the classic thing public hospitals in their big teams in hearts, in cancer, in other areas do well. Unfortunately, in our area, individual practitioners operating on their own, small businesses, do not deliver good outcomes. And the evidence has been absolutely clear. The Institute of Medicine in the United States said in 2006, it's the funder's fault. You know, if you're the insurer or the funder and you pay people to do low quality care, that's what they do. And in Australia, the big funder is the federal government. It's Medicare. So now, you know, the Medicare reform question for this government and any future government is, are you really up to it? I am one of those people who do things we underspend. We only spend 7% of the health budget on mental health. But if we're going to put big new money in, let's put it into things that for those with the least capacity pay, the more complex problems and get good outcomes. Be good to go back to calling it better outcomes. So I believe that the federal government is seriously considering these suggestions by the Mental Health Reference Group for the forthcoming budget. So you better tell us what they've suggested. Well, it's interesting that Catherine King at the press club last week said there were no, no MBS recommendations out. There are. These came out last week. So this government has an opportunity in this budget or any future government. We've modelled that, that just over the next four years, if they went down the track recommended by this group, which is to take away the diagnostic thresholds, to open up the number of sessions, what would actually happen is more people would flood in at the front end with less severe problems. And if you live in North Sydney, Eastern Sydney, Eastern Melbourne, you've got big capacity to pay, you'll see more services there for less severe problems. And the total cost of the system will be $2 billion more. We're arguing that $2 billion, if you're going to spend that kind of amount, should be spent on those who are actually got the highest chance of a very poor life and the least capacity to pay. So the mental health reference group says, well, one of the things they want to do is that you don't have to have a diagnosis and you, can, and you don't necessarily have to have symptoms, but you can go and see a psychologist. Um, and they say, well, but if you, if you look as if you're heading down the track towards depression, and they argue and they say there's, there's evidence to support them that, that preventing depression is a much better idea than dealing with it once it's occurred and this would be a good thing to do. Right. Preventing depression would be a good thing to do. Now, we should talk about risk factors like child abuse, family cohesion, drug and alcohol use, reduce all those things at a public level, like smoking for heart disease and cancer. They're big public health. And people like Tony Jorm and others who are critics of these programs, these treatment-based programs, say that. The so-called at-risk states, once you've got symptoms and you've actually got problems, you know, what, then you require often interventions. You require healthcare. Now, in the digital age and the bigger age we're in now, what sort of brief interventions are required? But also, there is the issue, which is not addressed. Is that where the greatest need is? Is that where the greatest return on investment actually would be? So there's a whole scope. I mean, So you're not denying there might be some benefit for no. some, but is it the best use of money? Yes. And now, having started these studies myself in the 1990s, we're in the 21st century. So there's this thing in your pocket called a phone. There's a digital age. I must say I'm very tied up in companies and developments in this area myself, and so is Sydney University. There are a lot of other options for that preventative end. And big things like the Wellcome Trust in the UK, et cetera, are looking at online, digital, et cetera. When you need real health care, you need really skilled people to work in teams, but plus whatever is out there in technology. So again, coming to what the mental health, re- you know, apologise to the audience for using these acronyms, but the mental health re- reference group said is look, um, and I think your analysis has shown is that only a thirty percent of people 
um, who are coming forward to see psychologists are actually new patients, new consumers. Right. So they're not seeing new people, they're seeing repeats. And But they would argue that they're just not getting enough care because they're only allowed six sessions. Well, let's see the outcome data. Yeah, let's see the outcome data. Well, now, we need to explain <laughs> yeah. that they're, they're arguing that there should be 10 sessions allowed to be prescribed by a GP, and there's three tiers um, that they're suggesting which could give you up to 70 sessions a year. So more is better is really what they're More arguing. is not better. This is, this is one of these great furfies. You know, if you need a particular type of care, you need to make sure you're getting it for the right condition that delivers the right outcome. Health is driven, as you know, Norman, by activity, right? We pay for every activity as if more is better. More is not better. In fact, you can do more harm. There's a lot of good evidence, both with pharmacotherapy and psychological therapies. More is not necessarily better. Depends what's wrong with you. If you've got anorexia nervosa, seeing the same psychologist over and over and over again. We've been doing work with veterans, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, people with child abuse, etc. Seeing unskilled practitioners or the wrong practitioner or the least good. Teams of practitioners. In fact, the National Mental Health uh, Commission. So just, just finish that thought. Yep. So, so if you see the least good or least trained practitioner, you're suggesting harm. harm. Yeah, you might be worse off. You actually do not deal with the condition and you exacerbate the condition. So we're seeing people now who say, look, that treatment did not help, so don't go. You know, actually don't go to care. It didn't help or in fact exacerbates the psychological distress or the suicidality. It didn't actually deal with the complex problems that I've got. It didn't help me to get back to work. It didn't reconnect me with my family. It didn't put the medical and psychological care because he did what the practitioner did. You know, surgeons working alone, they do surgery. Chemotherapists working alone, do chemotherapy. Radiotherapy working alone, does radiotherapy. What you need is the right combination, in that case for the cancer analogy, for what you've got. Mental health's the same. More is not simply better. And you see a lot of pushback now from smart consumers who've had poor psychological interventions by poorly trained practitioners. So I'm a great advocate of the skilled clinical psychologists working to lead and with complex teams with their GPs, with psychiatrists, with others, mental health nurses in particular, OT, social workers, working together, the right combination for you to actually get the right outcome. And that is not an omission of a number of sessions with each one. In fact, the National Mental Health Commission recommended cashing out actually the MBS. Say, look, instead of seeing- So working out what you spent last yeah. year and turning well, it into let's money. let's take 10 sessions at $150 a head, just average, yours plus the thing, $1,500. Give it to an agency that says $1,500. Go buy $1,500 from the right group of people for your condition. But isn't and that what NDIS does? So the NDIS, Norman, doesn't do clinical care. In fact, in really failed experiments like Victoria, they took the money out of clinical care to put into psychosocial support. So take away everybody who's clinical and go buy you a helper to actually do other things that you need done. So the NDIS does not fund and shouldn't fund the clinical care. That is the responsibility of the healthcare system. Together, they should combine to make a better life. So more is not better. And in fact, you've been to the fore with psychiatrists, stopping, <laughs> stopping psychiatrists doing two years of psychotherapy. I am a psychiatrist. Let's be clear here. I'm in more trouble with my psychiatrist colleagues than my psychologist colleagues because I'm saying two things. Pay the clinical psychologists as well to lead teams of psychiatrists and work together. And also, there's no reason to see psychiatrists endlessly. We're not endless psychotherapists. We have particular medical skills that should be used as well within these teams. So you get the right combination. We're highly skilled medical practitioners and need to work with highly skilled psychologists and others. So the Mental Health Reference Group 
acknowledged that team-based care was something to aim for, but they said they just didn't have time oh, to do it. We're always aiming in Australia, aren't we? We're always aiming for some future that never comes. Now, really, this MBS review, which Bruce Robinson, the Dean of Medicine, led right from the start in mental health, and the National Mental Health Commission, which I was on, said to Prime Minister Turnbull at the time, let's do the cashing out under our new primary health networks. This fee-for-service stuff doesn't work for us. It doesn't work in cancer. It doesn't work in complex heart disease. Let's stop it or at least explore alternatives. This thing's gone back and said, no, 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 let's expand it and do more of it because guess what? We love it. The providers, we love it. We make more money. We charge more out of pocket. We actually set up more practices in eastern Melbourne and eastern Sydney and you come find us. So it's ge- geographic maldistribution. The maldistribution is huge for specialisation in our area. One of the really big problems that we've studied endlessly under better access is the maldistribution. It doesn't work outside the wealthy suburbs of Sydney, Melbourne, parts of Adelaide and Brisbane. That's it. Because the proportionality, the out-of-pockets, you don't just see us once. The out-of-pockets, 25% of the cost is straight out of your pocket. And if you're sitting down here in Double Bay or in Hawthorne, you could charge what you like on top of the MBS, and people do, because people want care. I mean, mental health matters. In Australia, we're really aware, and that's really good. And people are coming along younger, and they're seeking care, but to improve, it's got to be quality care. It's a complex area. One of the problems in the public system where you do have team-based care is that you don't necessarily... You can't get in. <laughs> well, you can't get in, but the measures of quality of care are not necessarily that good. People sit around in meetings all day and you don't necessarily get okay. the best Let's care. be clear. Just in case anyone thinks I'm just simply a critic of the private sector, where many of our skilled practitioners have gone, they're not coming back to the public sector. The public sector has narrowed its focus. When I was a young psychiatrist, and boy, that was a while ago, most of what I learned was from very skilled people working in teams in the public sector. Now the public sector is overwhelmed by the demands for emergency care, for acute care, and much of it is involuntary care and does not deal with many of these complex disorders. So even in cancer care, it's very hard to get good teams together in the private sector because it's... Correct. And and to find the right people with the right skills. So just, we haven't got a lot of time left. But cancer specialists know that. Cancer specialists don't all go flocking off down the street. The heart specialists, the heart transplant people, they don't go flocking off down the street. They work in the public system because they care about better outcomes. So what's the path here? So is it public? Is it, is it based in the public sector or can you create a private model of this team-based care? Right. Now, the one thing about mental health is we don't need the infrastructure that a cancer team needs or a heart transplant needs. So we would argue you can do it in the private sector, but the financial incentives have to be right. This is where the Institute of Medicine in the United States said, look, the funder has to get it right. You know, I think there's, there has been a failure of professional leadership. It's well reflected in this report. And most of it, I must say, the dismantling of what was better outcomes in 2006 to better access was under pressure from all the professional groups. The minister at the time listened to the professions, not the people. So you create the financial incentives. Do we know what outcomes, do we agree on the outcomes we're trying to achieve here for these people? No, we agree on activity-based funding. One of my great friends and colleagues, Christine Bennett, when she was doing the review for the Rudd government. So it's how busy you are rather than what you do. She talked about activity-based funding and I was talking about outcomes-based funding. She said, look, it's very necessary at first to get activity so we know what the price is. I said at the time, particularly mental health, if we stop at activity, we'll just get more activity. So the outcomes are two. You stay alive and actually you have a more, more productive life. If you're young, you go back to school. If you're older, you go to work. These are the really strong economic drivers. They're not that hard to measure, actually. And, and that's how do what you people... hold people to account? Ha! Accountability. Now, my colleague, Sebastian Rosenberg, who writes about this, did his whole PhD with me on this. We hate accountability. People like to come and talk to us. We're very popular. Satisfaction's very high. 
But there is no accountability. We had no data systems in place to actually track what's been going on. I talked about the 46,000 consultations. As you said, the evaluation of this program, when it's grown from 50 million to 1.5 billion, has been minimalist. And there's been never any serious attempt to say what is actually going on. Now, we do know the answer that team-based care does deliver better outcomes, well studied. When they say aspirational, I'd say to this government and to the future government, when does it really matter? Would you let it go in cancer? Would you let it go in heart disease? Would you let it go in HIV? It's a job of work to be done, as always, in mental health. Yeah, but it's the key time. I love election years. If you, John Howard used to do focus groups. You know what? People worry about mental health and aged care because they're the bits of the system that don't work. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Norman. Ian Hickey is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney and Co-Director of the Brain and Mind Centre. I'm Norman Swan. You've been listening to The Health Report. Hope to see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.